You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored hello and welcome to tfm's books and comic show here literary tracks and i am just one of the hosts matthew rushing and with me as he is every time that we are here discussing the literary universe the one the only christopher brian jones oh wow use my full name people will know my full name now yes matthew i am here ready to talk some Books and comics with you, little adventures and TOS this week. Yeah, I'm excited. And, you know, but what's kind of cool, you know, uh, the last time that we recorded, Chris, we were talking about how we didn't really have a ton of news about what's coming up for books next year. Oh, right. Yeah. But since that time, that's completely changed. And, uh, you know, our first book of the year, it, it, I, I think, well, we should probably. Judge a book by its cover, judge a book by its cover, because Chris, it's been too long since we've judged a book by its cover. <laughs> I think that's a new version of Judge a Book by its cover, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah. I've been working on that since I've been gone from Literary Tracks. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just been released as a single. You can find it on uh, <laughs> Apple Music, so... Uh, <laughs> but coming up at the beginning of the year next year, uh, we are going to have a new uh, Picard novel. But this one is actually going to focus on uh, the Titan uh, right after the events we saw with what happens on Mars. And so it's called The Dark Veil. Uh, it's going to be by our good friend James Swallow, which I, I love his writing. And the fact that he's back with a Titan novel is fantastic, too, because he's written some uh, wonderful Titan novels. Uh, but... I have to say, I think this cover gets the stamp of approval because I love the way that the artist has taken that look um, from what we saw at the end of uh, the Picard series, you know, with Riker on the bridge and Troy, and he's kind of de-aged them a little bit, and and the uh, it's a really nice painting. It's a really nice work of art. I, I think they did a great job, and it, I you know mixed feelings about Picard as a series, but I'm actually looking forward to to reading, you know, what may lead, you know, this might be a good, interesting story to see what leads them away from, you know, Starfleet. So a good, good cover, good cover. And I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. It sort of reminds me a little bit of some of the old hard cover book mm-hmm. covers that we got back in the 90s. Uh, and they did a great job of capturing Riker and Troy, uh, Will Indiana. And I, I feel uh, capturing them a bit in a way that I remember them from, say, Nemesis, but updated a little bit for what yes. we saw in Picard. Yes. It's a nice balance. 
and uh, the cover looks fantastic. I'm really looking forward to the story because Picard is one of those series where there's a lot of room right now for wonderful authors to fill in the blanks and to flesh out that time period for us. Una did a wonderful job with her book, which I considered essential reading, actually, as a companion to the series. Absolutely. And of course, James will do a great job. I think we're both a little bit biased towards James, maybe because he's the author who wrote us both into (laughs) Star Trek novels. Our names are in the books. It's very true. I've got that on my wall. (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. So, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I got to be a Starfleet captain of the uh, USS Tokyo, thanks to James. But uh, James is a wonderful author, and uh, definitely I'm looking forward to reading this one, revisiting TNG era characters, finding out what happened at that key moment in the Picard story and uh, talking about it when the time comes. Absolutely. And and uh, in April, we're actually going to have a TNG era novel that features Deanna Troy, Beverly Crusher and Worf. Uh, that's going to be by Cassandra Lo- Rose Clark. And the, the title is called Shadows Have Offended. Uh, in July, we're going to be getting a DS9 novel that takes place during the series with Jadzia Dax, as well as Kira Norris, which sounds really fun. It's mm-hmm. called Revenant, uh, and that's going to be I, Alex White. So some great stuff coming out this year. I'm really excited to read some different books, you, you know, I, 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 and kind of going back to the series, which is really interesting. And obviously, you know, we know uh, from what Kirsten said in her interview, we're winding down the literary universe uh, as we know it, uh, and so it makes sense that they kind of be going back to mind some of these areas where you really have so much open space to tell stories with characters. Uh, it doesn't just have to be TOS in the in the five year mission mm-hmm. era. You've got all of this space for these other series, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and then uh, releases that have come out, and we'll be covering these soon on Larry Treks. But uh, DS Nine Comics released the last issue of Too Long a Sacrifice, uh, as well as we had the first release of Seven's Reckoning, issue one, that's come out. In fact, our next episode, Chris, um, you're going to be talking to Una about her Janeway uh, autobiography. And when we do the news for that section, we will uh, cover the review for Seven's Reckoning, uh, issue one, and I, I'm not sure if issue two will come out by that point. But we're planning on actually having two, this big news, we're planning on having two episodes this this uh, month to uh, make up for not having one uh, in November, which we apologize. Um, honestly, it was some behind-the-scenes issues that actually didn't have anything to do with Chris and I. Um, so, but we wanted to make sure we got you, uh, you know, Greg Cox on, so we didn't want to miss that as we talk about his new book. Uh but uh, before we get into the interview with Greg, uh, Chris, we do have two comics that have come out and we need to talk about with the year five issues 15 and 16. And honestly, I kind of like the fact that we've been doing it this way because these actually might make a little duology yeah. uh, that fit into the story that we've been going on, which is this whole election that's going to be happening here uh, in the Federation what did you think of this? Because it was such an interesting way to take it for these two issues. Well, I thought it was a fun little story. And as you say, these two serve as sort of a duology within the bigger story. Uh, you know, last time we looked at in the beginning of this, the, the Enterprise has returned from its five-year mission. And there's this desire on the part of the Attorney General at first for Kirk to run for president, but then he sets her up. And so that story about the election continues as the crew adjusts to 
being back in sort of the mix of Federation politics after having been away on this five-year mission for a while. And, you know, we, of course, spoiler alert here, if you haven't read the comics, please read them before you listen to this because we're going to talk about what happens here. But we find out that everyone's favorite kind of rogue character out there, Harry Mudd, has been brought aboard by the originalists to be their candidate for president. And we get to go to Andoria for this. And I thought, uh, you know, visually it's an interesting comic. It's always fun to me when we, we get to visit Andoria and see the visuals there because it's something that with the exception of Enterprise, we haven't gotten to see a lot. Uh, we're seeing a lot of Andorians pop up on Discovery in season three, but I enjoyed that part. And Harry Mudd, uh, he's, I don't know if I'm a huge Harry Mudd fan. The original series episodes are classics to me because I watched them as a kid growing up. I enjoyed what they did with Harry Mudd on Discovery, and the short trek was fun, quite fun. The idea of him becoming a candidate for president of the Federation seems quite odd. And Matthew, I think you may agree with me that this particular comic and this particular storyline feels a little bit on the nose for current events today. And I feel like the idea of bringing in a candidate like Harry Mudd, who is a political outsider, let's say, is likely a little bit of a commentary on what has happened in the world in recent years. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, you know, obviously the comics are very much trying to be, I think, timely in that. And, you know, they're trying to tell a story that is, is definitely applicable to the world we're living in now. Um, I would say, I think, like you said, it's, it's a little bit more on the nose than it needs to be. And it should be, um, and I, I very thankful that this whole thing with Harry Mudd, you know, with these two issues together, it comes down to that he's not really going to be the candidate. Right. Um, and we have this whole behind the scenes thing that has made this much more interesting of a story than it, it was when it just felt like, are they really going to make Harry Mudd the candidate and do this? Um, that Gary Seven is behind something that's going on yeah. with all of this. And that's, to me, what actually is making this fascinating. The rest of the story hasn't actually been that fascinating, but mm-hmm. that, like, threw a wrench into it where I was like, okay, I'm I'm in. I mean, like, I want to know now what in the world Gary Seven has to do with all of this. It's an interesting point, yeah, because I was thinking, like, what do I have to say about these two comics? And overall, not a whole lot. Other than I was imagining this as an original series TV episode and thinking that this story would make a really fun episode. If you if you take what we know about uh, current politics and elections and what's been happening in our own world, and if you just look at it as a story kind of in isolation and you think about Harry Mudd and you think about how Kirk and Harry Mudd would interact with each other, I think this could make a really fun original series episode. But overall, as a story, I read through the two issues and kind of like, okay, here we are. But then, as you say, Gary Seven comes in at the end. And now I'm really thinking, okay, what's going on with Gary Seven? What role is he playing in this? And so 
possibly the best part of these two comics for me is that they serve as the catalyst for the next part of the story that I think is going to be a lot more interesting. And I really, I don't know, I'm just really curious how Gary Seven fits into the whole thing, because that was sort of a surprise when he stepped in. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. And I think uh, it's going to make it a lot more fun than to see where this storyline goes. And so, you know, I, I would say if I had just read 15 by itself, I would have been a little frustrated. Uh, but reading them together, it actually made the story uh, better for me. And it leaves me hopeful then to see kind of where we're going to take this. Because now I'm not quite sure. Be- again, because we threw in the complete... I mean, Gary Seven just seems like a complete wrench into all the plans that you thought this might be going mm-hmm. uh, and the places this might be going. And I think that's perfect. This is exactly what I needed for this story. So I'm actually now more excited than I thought I would be after reading him because I'm like, okay, I, I, I need to know what he's up to because Gary Seven is always interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also made me think about the fact that, you know, Discovery this season is tying into something that happened on Enterprise that we learned about on Enterprise with the Temporal Accords. And there's so much happening right now with time travel and and influencing history or not allowing history to be influenced and different players involved. And if you think back to Enterprise, we knew there were many players involved in the Temporal Cold War. And I started wondering, is Gary Seven somehow involved in that? Is that going to somehow tie in where he's trying to influence Federation events at the end of Kirk's five-year mission. I don't know if that's where it's going, and I've only read through these once, so I haven't analyzed them in any depth. But it's just a thought that popped into my head. I wonder if they're trying to tie all these things together somehow. I mean, it would be great if they were, honestly. Uh, So I'm I'm excited. Um, But Chris, you know, I I feel like... Uh, it's it's really just time to, for us to get down to the brass tacks here and uh, jump in and, and talk to Greg about his latest TOS novel. Well, Chris, it is uh, always fun to be back at Larry Tracks, especially when we get to have uh, one of the authors on. And uh, we have one of the last books of the year, uh, A Contest of Principles by Greg Cox. Uh, and we're so excited uh, to be able to have Greg Cox here to talk about his latest TOS book. Greg, it is so good to have you back here on Literary Tracks. Thanks for having me back. Welcome back, Greg. Absolutely. Well, um, so really excited about this. Uh, and one of the things that I was wondering, uh, before we even really dive into this, the book itself, um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, how long we've been telling TOS stories. And, and I wondered for you as, as an author, one of the things I've I been thinking about recently was just how do you guys find a way to keep the, the stories fresh, the writing fresh when we've been telling stories, you know, especially in this time period for so long? Well, that, that's actually one of the challenges is you're always, I know for me personally, and God help me, I have been writing Star Trek novels now for a quarter of a century. Um, I'm always looking for something new. What what haven't I done? And, you know, one goes back to the original episodes, though I'll be honest, at this point, I think 
we, we pretty much milked the original 79 episodes. If there's one that, you know, outside of doing a sequel to Spock's brain, I'm not sure. That, you know, <laughs> I'm up for that. <laughs> Everybody has been begging for yeah. that one. Oh, I was been, I've been told not to even think about it. Yeah, Greg, <laughs> don't, don't even think about it. They, they, they know me too well. But no, so I'm hope we can get into the plot later. But even in this book, there were things I was like looking for things that I personally, I mean, you can go nuts trying to think of, well, I got to come up with something that's never been done in the 50 plus years of TOS. Well, that, that way madness lies. Mm-hmm. But you are looking for something different. I know in this case, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. It suddenly dawned on me I had never written a Dr. McCoy-centric novel. I mean, West books, you can see him there, you know, bickering with, bickering with Spock and offering advice to Kirk. But, oh, my God, I've never actually, you know, done a story where McCoy was sort of up front and center. So that was one of the, my major goals with this book is, oh, this is going to be my McCoy book. And I've been describing this book as my love letter to Dr. McCoy. You know, there's stuff, other stuff going on in the books. But yeah, this was like, okay, I'm going to focus on McCoy and really do something. And that's how, for me, well, how do I keep it fresh after 25 years? Well, what haven't I done yet? I've never done a McCoy novel. Bang, I'm going to write a McCoy novel. And indeed, Christine Chapel, who I admit that I have neglected, I have never really done fairly a lot, is a major character in the book. And that was fun for me that since I've never done a whole lot with Christine Chapel besides having her there in sick bay and having Andy McCoy, a you know, surgical scalpel, Hey, let let let's 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 give her a moment in the sun, and I enjoyed that too. Yeah, that was very interesting. One thing I'm curious about is uh, you, in particular. I feel like when I read uh, your books with TOS characters, I feel like you have the voices down really well. Sometimes voices can be off a little bit, but yours really feel like I'm watching those original characters, and when. The characters are so well known and fans have expectations about the types of situations they might be in or what a TOS adventure is when we think about the TV series. When you're tackling, and we're going to get into this uh, soon about some of the themes in this book, but when you're tackling current themes and current social issues through the framework of TOS as opposed to some of the newer series, do you find that there are any challenges in terms of flexibility of story or what you're able to do to meet the fan expectations of a TOS adventure and still kind of update that uh, view of issues to today's world compared with what was being put on the screen in the 60s? Well, I think it's mostly a case of like, I'm always trying to capture the feel of the original series. And there's almost a degree to which you, you have to strike a balancing act sometimes of trying to make it feel like the original series while also not making it feel like a period piece that was written in 1966. And this is a balancing act. Um, I actually, there's a review on Amazon as we speak. It, it's a positive review, but it's like, wow, this book reads like it was written 54 years ago. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> you know, that's not a, this is, this was intended as a compliment, but yeah. But I think in some things, again, it's, you know, in terms of the issues, a lot of the basic issues are timeless. I mean, in this book, you know, politics, corruption, medical issues, plagues, diseases, for better or for worse, this stuff doesn't go away. I mean, right. I wouldn't specifically do an episode about the Vietnam War that was a thinly disguised parable about the Vietnam War now, but I think, I mean, you can, this stuff is universal. I mean, look at, and again, um, 
I think Star Trek is flexible too. Look at look at the sixth movie. The sixth movie is very much that was made about the the, the end of the Cold War. Praxis is a stand-in for Chernobyl. Um, Gorkhan is okay. Gorbachev, you know. So right. I don't think you're stuck having to do stories about issues in the 1960s. You know, I'm not going to keep rewriting Star Trek novels about the Cuban Missile Crisis. But as long as you, you know extrapolate them out and you know the same issues are going to cop up on different planets um in this book we can get into the themes a lot of the his political stuff a lot of the palace intrigues wherever you have hereditary monarchies there are going to be palace intrigues those are those are timeless yeah i thought you know that was one of the things that did stick out to me um and as we kind of start to look towards more of the themes but just overall I thought the elasticity of the TOS stories and I, I really appreciated that for you. It's like, you know, you you can look at all of the different themes and thematic elements in the book and, and it's a, as applicable today as it was, you know, 50 years ago. And part of that is just because, you know, we have so many of the same issues and we're still working through so many of the same things. Um, and the human race has been doing that also for the last few thousand years, you know, so it's not a lot has changed. There's as as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so um, that's what makes these stories, I think, so helpful and so timeless, because, you know, you can read them at any time. And in the way that you've written this book, you can apply it to many of the things we've seen, you know, in the last few years, but you could also apply them to almost any time period. And I think that's that's the thing where, as a good storyteller, you want to be more timeless than you want to be kind of like just pressing a point in one point in history. Um, and, you know, even Star Trek VI, as much as it's about that Cold War era ending, it's also timeless because that's something that we've seen throughout history as well. You know, the ending of two major powers kind of coming together and finally joining hands. So, yeah, you, can, you know, you can watch, I, I think it is possible for young people to watch, I think, Star Trek six today and maybe not even pick up on the fact that, oh, Gorbachev, Gorkhan. I know it, it, it works in the context of Star Trek, the Klingons. Absolutely. You know, it, it works in the context of, you know, 50 years of, or how many years it was of strife between the Federation and the Klingons in the context of Star Trek. The trick to a certain degree is just not to be too, too, too obvious about it. And so, you know, if you make it timeless enough and to some degree translating it into the world of Star Trek. So, okay, you have telepaths and aliens and, you know, all that stuff. You're not just sort of, Oh, this character is, you know, you know, Mera Palin and she is the governor of, Alaska con, you know, that's that, 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 that dates fast, you know, but it's right. <laughs> timeless issue, you know, um, you're not like, Oh, well, the, the, no one's going to get this, this, this joke 10 years from now, you know, but yeah, but like oh, you said, absolutely. lots of political intrigue in this book and like political intrigue predates Star Trek. Political <laughs> intrigue will last beyond after Star Trek. So, you know, well, and, and that's, I, I think, one of the things that I, I think you did so well in the book, and one of the major themes was just about kind of the ethics of, of news. And, you know, and I think, you know, as we become a much more global society, this has become a, a bigger and bigger issue. You know, we have seen it, uh, and this is one where it is, I would say, a slightly more, um, you know, modern sensibility, even then 
what we experienced uh, in in the '60s and beyond. Like it's just become bigger and bigger. And I really liked the way you kind of see the these both sides of like you know how news can influence uh, populations and perspectives on things, and and when's the right time to tell uh, the news story, and what's the responsibility of you know giving the news out as you get it or when you have all the facts. And I thought that was really, really well done in this story, especially as Spock is kind of sparring with this muckraker. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's a, that's a pairing I never thought that I'd see, but now I'm really glad that we got it. Well, that actually goes back to your first question. And again, a lot of times I'm always looking for what haven't we seen in Star Trek. And honestly, you don't see a lot of journalism in Star Trek. I mean, you, you've got briefly, you've got, you know, Jake Sisko being a war correspondent during the Dominion War, but generally you don't see reporters and media in Star Trek. So that's why I, I, I was sort of on my list of things to do. Oh, well, you know, why not, you know, um, where are the reporters on these planets when all this stuff is going on? So that was very much on my to-do list. I mean, somewhere, well, where are the muckraking reporters? And again, if we're talking timelessness, you can see it's very contemporary now with the media and news and how it influences things. But at the same time, the muckraking reporter who's trying to get his story is an archetype that goes back to, like, I mean, I watch, watch, I watch lots of old movies on TCM. I mean, pretty much any old Warner Brothers movie from the 30s, there's, there's going to be the wisecracking muckraking reporter who, yeah. you know, <laughs> you keep the story shut or you're going to cause a panic or, you know, it's, you know, you know, go watch Mystery of the Wax Museum or something. And there's these sort of, you know, the muckraking reporter clashing with the authorities and what information gets out. That's as old as, again, it's, it's very contemporary. It's also, you know, a staple of like a different genre, almost a way of, you know, watch hardboiled detective movies, you know, there's, you know, Watch the Night Stalker with Kolchak. You know these, these are archetypal characters. You know, oddly enough, there isn't one in Star Trek really. So I thought, oh, let's let's and he pairing Spock was all very logical with this sort of cynical reporter. It was kind of fun. Well, and it gives you that opportunity to to dive into the fact of of how frustrating it can be then with all of these you know different sources and who to even trust and who to even believe when it comes to you know because. So much of the news becomes just about spin and partisanship and all of these things that makes it really difficult to know who's even telling any facts. Uh, and so I really liked that you you dove into that because, you know, you have the three different planets in the system and they all have their their different points of view and their different spins. And it's like it it really brought me back to sadly, you know, the last few years and how difficult and how cynical I've become just about trusting any news source, regardless of what it is. I, I mean, I, I don't even care, but just because I just don't trust it anymore at all. And Greg, if I can interject and add to what Matthew said there, uh, you know, throughout the book, you talk about facts a lot, about coming to, jumping to conclusions before you have the facts, relying on facts. It's throughout the book, there's a lot of talk about facts. And one question I had for you about this particular subject, as well as the election portion, is the timeliness because as you were as you were saying <laughs> earlier you know as i'm reading it my first reaction is it feels like the world we're living in right now but at the same time these themes as you said earlier are timeless and they keep recurring again and again so i'm curious about the um 
genesis of the story when you conceived of it, how much you were influenced by what's been going on in recent years, but also uh, just specifically to this topic that Matthew brought up, it feels like it's the case more than ever right now that facts are being thrown out the window and people are less interested in actual facts versus things they can just say and get people on one side or the other to believe are facts. So how much of like the current situation plays into this theme in this book and how much is it going through time, you know, with your experience in, in writing and journalism and so forth? What kind of light can you shed on that? Well, like I said, to address the elephant in the room, okay, mm-hmm. the really weird thing is, okay, this book was published on November 10th. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is very strange to pick up a book and don't read. I mean, I haven't looked at this book for a while. Oh, here's my brand new shiny copy and going, oh, good God, like within four pages, people are going, you're not going to steal this election. And all this talk about voter fraud. And I'm, oh, I honestly, I could live without, live with this book being rather less topical than it was. And there is a degree to which I can say, in all honesty, you know, I wrote this book over a year ago. Yeah. I submitted the outline to CBS to be approved well over a year ago. The idea of Kirk and crew being called in as impartial election observers during a fraught presidential election was something that's been sort of sitting and percolating in my file for years now. So and I can say I was deliberately not like, hey, I'm really, you know, perceptive. I'm going to make sure I have a book about a contested presidential right. election hitting in November 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could play, but I was that prescient. Um, that, be, that was not deliberate. That being said, you have clearly there was something in the zeitgeist and what was going on in the back of my head as I was writing this book that, again, I'm leafing through it and I'm seeing, oh my God, you know, lots of discussions of voter intimidation, as you see, and facts and spin and how, whether this information should be released to the public or not, and will, will it influence, will, will you, are you interfering with the election by releasing this information? Are you interfering with the election by not releasing this information? Do you wait until all the facts are in before you release the information? I mean, you know, this stuff is not written um, in a vacuum. And honestly, in the morning, I was not kidding up. Well, today I am going to write an urgent message about the importance of, of you know, maintaining the facts during a presidential election. But clearly, you know, the world we live in, it must have percolated in somewhere mm-hmm. because, good God, you know, I suddenly, you know, I, I, it's funny, I'm already seeing some reviews like, you know, this new book clearly expired, clearly inspired by the fractious 2020 election. And I'm like, how fast do you think I can write? Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 well, see, that's Greg's amazing. <laughs> that's the thing. You know, yes. as, that's as right. A, I, I I was watching CNN and I rushed on November 3rd and rushed out this book. You know. Right. Um, well, that's why you know I'm reading it, and as someone who works in publishing and as an editor myself, I, I knew like the timeline stretches back so you couldn't possibly have been reacting to the news so it was interesting how um how much it aligned with what has been happening in the past couple of months knowing that you had to conceive the story long ago because i know every time i talk about this you're like so this book about a fraud contested presidential election with cries of fraud and voter intimidation so wow (laughs) did you do that on purpose (laughs) right (laughs) Did you deliberately schedule that for November? You know, uh, 
I thought, Greg, and uh, one of the lines that really struck me was when Spock says, you must be aware that you may sometimes make news by reporting news, therefore becoming part of the story. And I thought it was such a great line because I feel as though every news station, regardless, again, what side they're on, has stopped believing this or even caring that this is a thing. And uh, they just make news because they need news to fill 24 hours a day. So they, they, they work their damnedest to make news instead of actually like what we're kind of talking about, which is, you know, news, we would hope it would be to give us the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And that's just not the world we live in whatsoever. And But that statement was the clearest statement. I was like, man, I wish... Every news organization would read this book because what Spock says is absolutely true, and it's too bad that nobody cares enough anymore. Well, at least in the defense of my reporter in the story, he, he does want to get his facts straight. He's not making stuff up. He's, however, taking the position that he is not responsible for the consequences of his stories. I actually thought him less of, as, as less of sort of a, you know, you know, propagandist, as he's like a scientist who has invented this new wonderful dis- discovery. Well, okay, the consequences are not. You know, I'm going to invent. You know, you know, I'm I'm going to invent the A bomb, and what happens to it afterwards doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to throw these facts out there. And he actually says, I, I don't care about the big picture. That's for the historians twenty years from now. Can I'm just going to get the facts out? You know, and Spock is like they have this debate. Well, yes, but your facts are going to have consequences, and also. Don't you want to at least get your stories right? Well, I'll get it outright for today, and I'll put out a correction next week if I have to. Well, you know, Spock is encouraging him to try to, you know, not to, you know, repress the news, not to slant the news, but don't rush out and put out fake half, half. And again, my reporter has some integrity. He's making stuff up. He's like, don't put out stuff before you have the whole picture. Don't you want to get the whole picture? You know, don't, you know, this is going to cause unrest. Don't you want to get... And that's the sort of the di- dynamic. And he's, well, on the other hand, being a reporter, I'm not going to sit on this story for, you know, my job is to get the facts out to the people. What they do with them is not my responsibility. He's, you know, I just, I just give the facts, ma'am, you know, mm-hmm. and let the chips fall where they may. And Spock points out, well, sometimes the timing of when you put out this information, you, you can't just wipe your hands of it and say you're a neutral party, you know. Right. But like I said, I, I, I tried to put, plausible arguments in the mouth of the reporter character who's like, hey, you know, that's for the historians. I'm not here to decide the big picture. I just get the facts out and I'm going to get the facts out that the government doesn't want you to know. And he's actually serving it first because as we see, at the same time, the authorities on that one planet are very much trying to control the spin, control the narrative. So the fact that he's providing, getting the facts out and providing a counter narrative and revealing the facts that the authorities don't want to know, my reporter is actually, while on one level trying to not take any responsibility for his actions, he is in fact serving a ecological niche there. And there is a dynamic, and like I said, it's not like Spock is absolutely kind of, Spock doesn't say, I don't have the answers here, but Spock just keeps urging him to get the big picture, give me 48 hours to find out what the real truth is before you run with a half-baked story that may or may not be true. And they possibly, you know, have negative consequences, and indeed get Mister Mc- and indeed get Doctor McCoy killed. But you know, yeah. <laughs> well, and and I mean, you know, 
on top of that, you know, it really does come down to responsibility, you know, uh, along with the ethics of news, like a, a major theme in this whole book is, is like, what is your responsibility in the role that you have? And that responsibility is, is larger than just yourself, you know, and, and so I, I think one of the things that this book mirrored so well is that what we see in our world and we've seen in history is that when the world is at its worst, it's when everybody is only caring about themselves. They have, they don't care about the responsibility towards anyone else. Uh, and, and that plays out in this book as you see different politicians with that attitude and, and, um, you know, different, um, uh, political parties and, and it just responsibility. It, it comes down to that. And do we care about the fact that we do have a responsibility beyond ourselves? Uh, and that was that was a huge part for me in this book and something that I really enjoyed about the story. And sometimes the choices aren't easy. Like I said, uh, in the case of the Kirk spot plot line, and, and for those who have not read the book, basically there's kind of a an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot, and there's a Kirk plot, a Spock plot, and a McCoy plot. And each of them is on a different planet dealing with kind of a different political situation. Um, in Kirk's case, like I said, he's trying. He's there as an election observer, and he's trying very hard to stay neutral. Even though, frankly, the Federation would rather prefer that one side, you know, wins rather than the other. But he's trying and trying to strike this balance and trying to make sure everything turns out okay and be neutral. And again, it comes down again. There's even a news story there where he has he gives some information. And it's like, well, if I release this information, this will have consequences. If I don't release this information. And I'm going to get flack from either side for trying to put my thumb on the scales here. And he has to, you know, weigh whether or not, you know, what happens, you know. And, and it, it's, it's a heavy responsibility. And sometimes there's not easy answers. And he has to, okay, if I release this information, I'm going to be accused of bias by one side. If I don't, if I sit on this information, I'm going to be accused of bias by the other side. So it, it's tricky. And meanwhile, McCoy has got his whole medical issue where on one hand, there's his Hippocratic oath kind of ends up conflicting with um, his duties to Starfleet, you know, um, where there's a medical crisis that also has serious political implications. So, and first and foremost, McCoy, of course, is going to go for curing his patient. Yeah, the, the, the idea was to like set up lots of different, you know, moral dilemmas. And also going back to your first question, where I got this idea like I said, the idea of the Enterprise crew being election observers has been sitting in my files for years. And what I liked about that idea, with no intent to be topical, was simply, this, again, not something we've really seen a lot. It was a political plot that didn't involve, say, them transporting ambassadors to a vital peace conference or something that we've seen many times before. I, I can't swear it hasn't been done in many of the other thousand Star Trek novels, but, you know, we never saw... There hasn't been a whole lot of episodes with them, with the Enterprise crew being enlisted to be impartial election observers on a fraud election on an alien planet. So that was, again, that was something new. That was something different. It wasn't a plot we'd seen, to my mind, 500 times before. So, and it's been sort of buried in the back of my brainstorming file for a while until it finally kind of percolated to the surface here. Which is the way it works. Like, I'm going to get these ideas. I literally do have like a manila folder where I just stick random ideas that Star Trek books <laughs> into it. Sometimes they can live there for years before sort of percolating up, you know, to, oh, this is the time to use that idea finally, you know. And these ideas just suddenly hit you out of the blue. You jot them down. 
plop it in. Or I'll read an you know I'll read an article about election observers uh, in yeah. South America or something. Oh, that's kind of a cool idea. You know, I wonder if Starfleet ever gets listed to doing this sort of thing. And also, it's the, the brainstorming file is full of newspaper clippings and magazine articles and things that I sort of you know oh you know. Well, well, here's a news item that you may not have encountered here in Japan. Some farmers were having problems with bears coming from the forest uh, into the fields. And so they created these like robot wolves with flashing lights in their eyes and all to scare them away. I was talking about uh, Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe uh, plop that into your file. Maybe you can break that into a future story. (laughs) Robot wolves. That's that's the next Star Trek. That's how we do scarecrows (laughs) in Japan, Matthew. And then they become artificially intelligent. Exactly. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, that's and creepy. Has to cause them to blow up by using illogic on them. But how do you use logic <laughs> on a robot wolf? You know, the wolves of Armageddon. Okay, the wolves uh, of Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's already written. That's right. Um, you, you know, you were talking about that idea of, you know. Kirk having to make the decision because he comes in, into this information about uh, the the plot to assassinate Dev's sister, uh, who's you know been uh, who's running for for uh, president against the general, and and Dev has actually engineered the, and gone to extreme lengths to set the general up to look like he's you know tried to kill her. And um, I, I loved that moral dilemma of Kirk having this information, the Enterprise having this information, and knowing that if we release this information, it will harm the candidate we think is better for this planet to win. Um, and, and the moral integrity then to do the right thing, honestly, when nobody's looking, because nobody would ever know, you know, like, so... Um, and I just I thought that that was really great because it it is again it's one of those things when you talk about responsibility and integrity, um, you see that the Enterprise and specifically Kirk has the integrity to be like we'll let the people make the decision with the actual facts with the truth. Spoiler: uh, This pays off in the end because in the end, when there's a certain amount of drama over whether or not the losing candidate will accept the results of the election and concede. And, oh, my God, I swear to God, I wrote this book a year ago. And there's much, the payoff comes to a certain degree because at this point, Kirk has managed to maintain the integrity of the election process so that, you know, there there, there ends up hopefully being a smooth transition in power when this is not entirely, you know, guaranteed, you know, but... Kirk is falling over himself for most of the book to avoid the appearance of any sort of favoritism and to protect the integrity of the election process, even over the preferences of the Federation. Because again, if I can do spoilery, the, the Federation has would prefer the more peace-minded candidate win rather than the more hawkish candidate. But Kirk's first job is to not take sides, but to make sure that this election occurs, you know, fairly and that that. And that, in fact, this pays off in the end when, you know, there, there is the results of the election are, spoiler alert, accepted, you know, um, without too much turmoil. And, and yeah, the fact, yeah. That, the fact that this book ends with, okay, will the losing candidate accept <laughs> the results of the election or will they contest it? You know, there must have been something in the air, you know. <laughs> 
Well, and that's, you know, uh, one of the things that I thought you kind of nailed about politicians of all ilk was the whole do as I say, not as I do. Uh, and, you know, when we find out that the general uh, has, has who has been, you know, portrayed himself as a man of honor, uh, and yet he's not a, above using deception when it benefits him. Um, and I just loved it. It's just such a great little nudge. It like, this is just what we see in politics from eons past all the way to now of like, I'm going to tell you what to do, but I'm not going to follow those same rules myself. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't know if there could be anything more topical than that these days. Yeah, one of the plans on the book was indeed different kinds of politics. You've got the three planets. One of them is doing dealing with electoral politics. The other one is more of a hereditary monetary, so it's old-fashioned sort of palace intrigue, you know, who's going to, you know, be the crown prince, princess and everything. And then there's the middle one, which is all more about a sort of divided culture that's coming out of a civil war and sort of contested territory. So, again, all timeless themes, kind of, but there was sort of a sense of, as I'm jumping around, because it's a big, thick book, you don't want to keep hitting the same notes, that you're, you're kind of dealing with modern electoral politics on the one planet, you're dealing with old-fashioned sort of palace intrigues, hereditary monetary, you know, visitors and advisors and whatnot, um, and major domos on one planet. And then the other planet, which is the contested territory, which is, in my head, honestly, was sort of a composite of Northern Ireland, Kashmir, uh, post, post-World post War II Vienna, just sort of this sort of, you know, disputed territory where, again, Lots of espionage and intrigue, and nobody is really can be trusted. Okay, you know, and everybody has their own agenda. Which is an example of how the themes are timeless because you've taken areas that have yeah. had these situations over time and kind of pushed them. And even the electoral politics stuff, it, I was not, just to be clear, it's not, you must be worried, it's not a, I was not aiming for a one to one correspondent modern pair. You know, General Gog, who's the antagonist and that, you know, is not Trump. He's, he's, he's an old fashioned military strongman type who honestly, I was kind of thinking of like Juan Perón, various military juntas and mm-hmm. stuff. That, that's what I was kind of going for there. He's not actually, you know, I've had people, I say that because people ask me, Oh, so is the bad guy politician in your book supposed to be Trump? No, no, he's yeah. honestly, um, general, Go- general Gog has a lot more class than Trump, but, no, I wrote him as an old-fashioned military strongman type, you know. Um, it's an interesting point about how when we read things, we, we, we're very much in our moment, and we read stories through the lens of today. I see this as well when people watch older Star Trek episodes, and they watch them through today's eyes, and they read a lot into them that's not actually there from the writer's perspective. And uh, I think sometimes we, we forget that the situations we find ourselves in today are not unique and they have played out in the past. And it's interesting though, how, how we latch on to it through the situation that we're in, in the moment. I, I don't think it's a big secret for anyone who's read the book that this, the plot line on Ozalor, which is one of the planets. Oh, okay. That's czarist Russia. Okay. That was basically, mm-hmm. I, I, I sci-fi it, but that it's czarist Russia before the revolution. Okay. Um, so yeah, you you when you're world building, you look at history because these themes repeat. And like I said, the the disputed planet, honestly, the, the, both the other two planets claim position on that could be Jerusalem, that could be Kashmir, that could be Northern Ireland, that could be you know any number of types where you've got 
a planet that's gone back and forth in control by different, you know, and you've got different factions there. And where you have kind of a weak provisional government and you've got revolutionaries. These are all, like I said, not one to one. When I say that, I don't say it's not a one to one correspondent. The planet Braco is not Northern Ireland. It is not Kashmir. Right. It is not Jerusalem, but it's, it, 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 it's, it's disputed territory that both people have, that various factions have very deep claims, deep long rooted historical claims to, and trying to sort that out is a problem. So. Well, and, and that brings to mind, you know, one of the things that we kind of see in this book is, is these long running feuds yeah. uh, that have been happening. And, you know, it, it came into this idea of just kind of like relitigating the past continually and never letting the past, letting it go. Um, and how dangerous that can be when people cannot move past the past. You know, they're just stuck in the past wrongs and they can't find a way into the future. And I really loved um, one of the characters. They say, you know, how they it, that, that didn't mean that they don't care about history or that they want to sweep it under the rug, but they want to be able to move on. And, and I think that's really what I loved about the book is that it shows how it's important to know what happened in the past, but we ne- we need to use that as a way to move forward, not to just keep litigating what happened over and over and over again, or we'll never be able to move forward. We'll just be stuck. It's, and that, you know, sorry, moving on is not the same as erasing history or burying it. It's exactly. not being chained to it and having to keep fighting the old grudges and avenging the old wrongs or, you know, you, you can acknowledge the bad stuff that happened in the past and not let it keep defining your future for, you know, for generations. And yeah, I remember that speech. I remember writing that speech. Okay. Uh, over a year ago. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just, I mean, it again, I think it's one of those things that it, it's just so important because we kind of see that, you know, we've seen it play out in the world um, many times, but, you know, it is becoming more and more a thing that you're seeing. It's like if we we have to be able to do both, we have to be able to remember what happened. We also have to find a way to move forward um, or we won't have a future. Uh, and so, um, you know, people have to be able to, to, to grow, um, and be given the opportunity to grow. And, and so, yeah, it's just a, I think that's, um, one of the things that I'm, you know, really stuck out to me in, in the book. And I really wanted to ask you then too about this kind of like finding out something new. Like we find out at the end of the book. So this is a big spoiler for everyone. Um, if you haven't read the book and you're still listening to this point, I just want you to know we're going to talk about the very end. But how did you come up with this idea of, you know, what Spock, Spock finds out about these three planets and that they're actually not native to these planets at all? Well, that was sort of, like I said, there was this sort of idea that there are a lot of angst and wars and bloodshed being committed over something that was basically a myth. Uh, to elaborate for people who haven't read the book, um, the, there's this one planet that is believed to be the native birthplace of this humanoid species, which has since spread out and colonized the sector. And you've got these two rival planets, both claiming possession of our sacred homeland, you know, our birthplace, the birthplace of our race, our species. We must own this. It, it turns out that they're all long buried in the past, Braco, which is believed to be the birth, the birth, you know, the sacred birthplace of our peoples, 
isn't, that there it's a long lost colony from a long dead civilization. None of them are native to this time. <laughs> None of them are in fact native to the sector. They just, their, their, their actual history has been long buried in the past. So to a certain degree, there is hope. And again, you know, I tried not to make too easy solutions. They acknowledge the fact that people are not going to immediately believe this. People who have spent a thousand years fighting over this, the sacred birthplace of their people are not going to just, oh, wait, you've got a genetic study which proves that we are actually not from this sector? Oh, cool. You know, they're not, but at least, again, it's all about getting the information out there. And I didn't realize this is a recurring theme. It's funny, as I talk to you, I'm suddenly seeing this book is a whole lot more consistent than I thought it was. <laughs> well, no, no, I didn't realize that clearly the stuff that, yeah, there's a whole big debate about, well, okay, we have this information. Turns out that none of you are native to the system and the sacred home planet you've all been fighting for isn't your home planet anyway. Um, there's some debate about how do they get this information out and should they get it? it, it is it Starfleet's responsibility? Because these people are outside the Federation to even, you know, share this information. And Well, who this information to? You give it to the authorities, you give it to the scientists, do you give it to the revolutionaries, do you give it to the muckraking reporter? Uh, and and it's acknowledged that this isn't going to change everything overnight, that a lot of people are going to go, well, there is it, fake news, this is, we don't believe the scientists, whatever. But at least the process is there, you know. Um, you know, in a lot of these stuff, even on Breco, that nothing is resolved. Things arguably are moved better than they were before the Starfleet Enterprise arrived, but I didn't want to do a plot where Spock arrives on Breco and suddenly a thousand years of dissension and civil war are suddenly averted overnight. He, he again, spoiler he gets the two sides talking to each other again. He puts the ideas in their heads that maybe it's time to put aside some of the old grudges, and he starts opens up lines of communication that were not there previously, but Spock does not overnight fix the planet, the problems on Breco. You know, he was sort he was of practicing art. for unification. One, two, and three. Indeed. And I also, I was also kind of thinking a bit of the bit at the end of uh, Mirror, Mirror, where Kirk doesn't single-handedly overthrow the evil Terran empire at the end of the episode, but he does kind of plant an idea in the head of bearded Spock uh, first bearded Spock, not even peck bearded Spock, <laughs> right. you know, near yeah. uh, universe Spock that, hey, you know, maybe there's something you could do or start the process of undermining the evil, corrupt Karen Empire. Yeah. So but, uh, that was kind of what I was kind of going for again, where Spock plants the idea in the heads of various people and opens up lines and comes up with some information, which if people take it seriously, would maybe tone things down a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. um, make, make Breco not quite so such a bone of contention if it's not quite as sacred as they think it is, even though this is accepted, the public is not going to immediately just, oh, a Starfleet scientist has a genetic study that proves you're, you're not native to this planet. That's not going to. Right. The entire world isn't going to go, oh, okay, never mind. We've been wrong the last thousand years, you know, <laughs> never mind. Okay. You know, yeah, someone uh, can't come in and instantly change your mind. Yeah. At least they get the information out there, and the break have the information, the Ozalorians have the information. You know, the scientists have the information, and we will see what happens. Right. So I was avoiding easy answers. Yeah, I mean, you highlight that it's a process. It's not, things don't instantly change, that there has to be a process uh, that uh, affects change. And 
sometimes I think that's something that's lost on the world. It's similarly when with the other planets, Azalor for reasons again because of a question an issue in the past. Boy, I was damn thematic here. Um, does not have diplomatic relations with the Federation because of a atrocity that occurred in the past. And at the end of this book, lines of communication are opening, and they they don't. The new, a new Federation embassy has not opened on Oslor, but thanks to the efforts of Spock and McCoy, and for reasons, they're talking again, and who knows, maybe a new era of cooperation. Oslor ain't joining the Federation any day now, but at least we're talking again. Well, and that's one of the things that really struck me about like almost all of these stories that you were telling is that, you know, in all of these places, the the crew of the Enterprise does the right thing, regardless of how difficult it is, and that they pay off, you know? Um, and I think, you know, that's something that I think, you know, our world could definitely use more of, which is do the right thing even when it seems impossible, and, and more than likely it's going to pay off uh, in a way that you can't expect. Um, and... And lots of times for the better, because that's how the world works. And I really appreciated that this book is all about kind of just helping us see that that's the case. And, and you know, the the guts that it does take for all of these characters to do that, especially when their lives are on the line. You know, McCoy's life is on the line. Spock's life is on the line. Kirk's life is on the line. Chapel's life's on the line. All of these people, they're putting their lives on the line for the truth in the end, for what's right. And it pays off. And I think, you know, that's something that Star Trek can do so well and to help us see that 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 truly is something that we should not lose, even in our world today. It's funny, as I'm talking to you, in my head, it was sort of like there were three different plots in that book. But yeah, all three of them, it's all about information. It's all about politics. It's all about building trust, opening lines, communication. These things, clearly this was in the back of my head. These things keep popping up. Even in the three very different situations on the three very different worlds, the issues of information about politics and building lines of communication just keep popping up on all three, three planets, you know. And I'd like to say this was all planned in advance, but there is a degree to which that was just sort of, I guess, percolating in the back of my head, you know, as I wrote this book. Well, and I mean, you know, you were just talking about how you felt like you're talking that the book came together, you know, better than you expected. But, you know, it, it really does show, I think, that there was something going on in your thought process that, that led all of these plots to kind of have similar, uh, you know, themes. And yet they're all coming at it from different angles. But it allows us to really, and I think that's you know what makes it a good book is it gives us that opportunity to to be able to see all sides of these these thematic elements um, and how complicated they are. Yet in the end, I think the the overriding sense of of you know continuity is that they don't work. All of these thematic elements don't come together unless you know the crew of the Enterprise chooses to do the right thing, regardless of how hard it is. Even on three different planets in three different situations and yep. three, yes. <laughs> what, in three, what seemed to me three very different kind of adventures, but in fact, all keep hitting the same themes, apparently. Okay, you know, which were clearly at the back of my head as I was writing the book. Okay. Uh, so, Greg, now that we've gone through the whole story, there, there was one moment that stood out to me and triggered a question I wanted to ask you because 
you're an author who has written many original series novels. And, you know, there's a lot of debate in fandom these days about some of the stories that are be, being written today on Star Trek Discovery in particular, and its original setting as a prequel to TOS. And the thing in the book that made me think about it was you're talking about Madame Zell and the optical implant. And Kirk mentions that he understands that there are common limitations to cybernetics and prosthetics, even in the Federation. And you wrote, he'd known a crew member aboard the Farragut who needed to prune and download his memories on a regular basis. And I instantly thought, that's what Arium does on Star Trek Discovery. She has to download her memories. And I was curious if you were thinking about that when you wrote it. Was that sort of a connection a connection to a new element that had been introduced on the timeline prior to this point in Star Trek by a new series? And my, my bigger question is just how do you feel about the texture that's being added to Star Trek right now by Discovery in particular as a prequel, as someone who's written so much about the original series over the years. Now you have some new things to play with. That's exactly the way to put it. It's like, oh, cool. As they keep fleshing out the pre-TOS era, that gives me more things to... And yeah, the, the, the bit about him, you know, remembering the crew member that had the downloadable memories. It's like, oh, you know, that was absolutely inspired by Ariam and Desco. But... Oh, well, now we know that that's a thing in Kirk's time. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the funny of trying to maintain the tone of the original series while also incorporating this new stuff. You know, I didn't go so far as to put a cyborg crewman on the bridge right. of the Enterprise because we didn't see him there. But to say that he knew one on the Farragut, well, fine. That's, I didn't say it was Arium. It was just, oh, we know this technology exists. And yeah, there's also some throwaway references. I think, you know, I have a list of aliens Mm-hmm. I actually have it written on a piece of paper of aliens that were known to the Federation at the time of TOS, as opposed to the ones they ran into in the later series. And yeah, as I'm watching Discovery, I'm adding, oh, good, I can reference Kelpians. I can rescue, you know. So it gets, it's, it's like, it, it's because the fun of fighting Star Trek is you've got this whole, you know, big, long span. And I, I've been embracing this from day one. I mean, my very first Star Trek novel had the Hortas from TOS popping up on TNG. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book where Captain Kirk, where Seven of Nine time traveled and met Captain Kirk. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So you know, so bringing you know bringing TOS elements into TNG, you know, bringing disco elements into TOS. It's that that's the fun of weaving this stuff all together. There, there's actually two or th- you, you didn't mention one of my you know lines that made me chuckle in the book. There's a scene where Spock, who has been locked up in a dungeon, is needs a shave. Oh, yeah, I remember. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, a chap, and he, you know, Chapel mentions, you know, you might look good with a beard. Yeah. And he goes, I experimented with one in my youth. Exactly, yeah. It was not universally well received. I noticed. I, that. I admit, I chuckled yeah. over that when I got that line. Yeah, you know? yeah. uh, like, of course, you know, that, 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 yes, that was a, it works in the context of TOS because, hey, Spock has, can grow a beard. We know Spock can grow a beard. Mm-hmm. We saw Mirror Universe Spock, we saw his brother Cyborg had a beard. But yeah, that was a tip of the hat to Ethan Peck and Disco. Well, you know. I also like that you included that because it also is an acknowledgement of Spock's years that we see on Discovery and bringing that, yeah. bringing what he did during those years more into the overall storyline of his life, uh, even through the literature. 
I think that's uh, important. And it was a nice touch in here. And again, you did it in such a passing way that uh, it's not necessarily part of the story. It's just a reference. Yeah. And it, it, it honestly is kind of, and it's kind of meta. On one hand, it makes sense because he's, he's locked in a dungeon and he hasn't shaved. On the other hand, it, like I said, it's sort of, you know, hopefully sort of, you know, ah, an amusing little in-joke reference Easter egg for discovery, you know. And the sort of tip of the hat to Ethan Peck, as it were. So, you know, version stock. And yeah, you you absolutely called it. I was probably watching. And yeah, I can tell you, in fact, this is how it works. It's, you know, for those who don't know, I'll you know, I generally submit like a 12-page outline for these books before I write them. And it's approved by CES. But that gives me a whole lot of room to flesh things out. And I got to this one point where Kirk has to interview a witness to a crime. I had probably just seen that disco episode probably a week before, and I'm like, well, how can I make this scene? You know, the idea of Kirk investigating the assassination attempt was in the original outline. Him running into a witness who had downloadable memories, that was inspired from probably like watching the Discovery episode the night before. Okay, you know, that's how you flesh out your very loose 12-page outline. That, that wasn't in the original outline, but the, I think Kirk investigating the murder was. And then when it comes time to write well, that scene, the Arium thing gave me a way to make that scene a little cooler, hopefully. Yeah, I, I love that that texture is being added there. So, so Greg, we've gone through the book, and it was wonderful to learn the behind the scenes, some of the thought process there. Tell us what you have coming up on the horizon. Okay, I, I haven't got, honestly, a, a lot I can actually talk about. There's stuff that I can't talk about yet. Uh, what I do have is a handful of short stories um, and things. There's a new book out called Musings on Monsters. It was published by a small press, and it's a collection of essays on classic horror movies. I wrote an essay um, uh, comparing Boris Karloff to Beta Lugosi. This book came out in October, just in time for Halloween. So if you're interested in classic horror, I wrote for that. There's also a book coming out shortly, which is a charity anthology. It was, it's being put out by the International Association of Media Italian Writers. And yes, there is an International Association of Media Italian Writers. And I'm blanking briefly on the title, uh, but it's a charity anthology to raise money for a literacy fund. And the gimmick was we each took a public domain character, so we have to pay licensing mm-hmm. fees, and wrote a story about a tie-in story. I think it's called Fit to be Tied or something like that. Um, and we each do, wrote a story, you know, which we donated to this collection, which is going to be a fundraiser. And my, my story, I jumped on Mina Harker from Dracula and then wrote a story about Mina Harker in her later years. And, oh, God, I should probably, I'm tempted to go on the internet and try to look, look up the title. But it's, it's a, it hasn't come out yet. It's a charity anthology being put out by the International Association of the Italian. I'm not sure what the exact pub date is, but it's, it's that, that's another project I kind of read out. And beyond that, in the manner of writing, I have outlines and proposals sitting on desks waiting to be approved, and that's pretty much where I stand at the moment. Where, uh, where can people find you online too, Greg, if they want to be able to then keep up with you so they know, uh, you know when you're able to, to announce things coming out? Well, I'm, I, I don't have a huge social media presence, but I, I have a website where I try to announce my books. I update it erratically. I, I also hang out in a lot of uh, the usual Trek message boards at the Trek BBS. I, 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 I check the Trek BBS 
especially the literary trick boards. I'm on Facebook and I take part in a lot of um, the sort of Star Trek book discussion groups on Facebook. Uh, recently, I've been hanging out a lot on Facebook at a site called Constellation, which is sort of a virtual science fiction convention, which is being held for all of us poor orphans who haven't been to a convention in a year. Yeah. And by, by coincidence, there was actually a discussion going on yesterday on what's your favorite Star Trek novel. So I was all over that one. I've been hanging out in Constellation a lot because it's actually now been a full year since I've been to a science fiction convention. But yeah, so yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a Twitter account or anything, but I, like I said, a lot of the Star Trek book clubs and literary Star Trek book threads and things I tend to sort of hang out in jabber at okay you know especially now that i've got a new book out. now i've got a new book out of course i'm dropping in checking these literary trek boards and seeing what people are saying about it you know. and i suppose you can't I'm, tell us anything not. about your discussions with cbs all access about your new star trek tv series focused on journalism right <laughs> right it's, <laughs> it's called the night andorian stalker okay no but yeah Ooh. or something there's probably a better pun I could make there, but you know, but, and of course, like I said, I know I'm like everybody else. I'm watching the shows every Thursday. So that's great, Greg. Well, we appreciate you so much coming on. Uh, it was a blast talking about this one. Obviously we got to talk about some, you know, really, you know, important themes. And, and I always love when that's able, uh, we're able to do that. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And actually thanks to the nice people at pocket books for setting this up okay uh absolutely Absolutely. great talking to you greg you know that was so much fun to talk to greg and and i love that we got to talk about you know so many um huge big important themes throughout his book Um, and and to me that that's the hallmark of what makes a good star trek story you know in his book there's this group called the tranquility bureau and as you were talking and then he was responding to you, I felt a little bit like you might be the commissioner of the Consistency Bureau because <laughs> he kept mentioning <laughs> how <laughs> maybe maybe things did come together more consistently than he originally imagined after he uh, heard you describe them. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, that's so cool that, that like because you, you think about it when we talk to these authors, you know, they've been they've written these books usually a year beforehand. So being refreshed and reminded about their work in this way when they do interviews has to be fascinating for them. Uh, and so it, it was really neat to see that, you know, something that he wrote was really coming together for him in a way that maybe he hadn't even experienced when he was writing it. So that's neat. Yeah. Well, the writing process is organic. And as you say, it takes time from when these are conceived and written to when they land in our hands. And after they're done, the writer moves on to other things and they're focused on something else. And, you know, it, it is a bit of an experience of looking back on that. And same for us as podcasters, you know, people, people contact us often. They're like, I'm listening to this episode and you said so-and-so. And I'm thinking, I have no memory of what I said in that episode because it was five years ago. <laughs> Seven years ago. And, uh, but it's interesting to have that kind of resurface and you can think again about, you know, what you were thinking at the time and and how you reached a particular conclusion or, or a thread. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we want to thank everybody, of course, for for listening. Um, you know, don't forget uh, to find us. You know, where, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, we're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all of those places. So give us a star rating review. Make sure you re- uh, subscribe to the show so that you get it as soon as it drops, as it comes out every month. Um, and uh, of course, too, uh, you can really help us out here on the network by supporting us through Patreon. Uh, you know. It, Chris, we've talked about this behind the scenes, but it it costs so much for us to put this together each and every month. And without the support of listeners, we couldn't do it. And not only that, but I mean, we continue to do this ad free here on Trek FM. And so if you appreciate what we do, you appreciate the support that we give you, uh, you appreciate the episodes that we put out every month, um, please do find us on Patreon. Uh, and you can become a Patreon over there at patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, you can, we've got a bunch of different contribution levels, but in the end, uh, every little bit helps. Uh, you could even be an associate producer of this show, which we'd like to thank our associate producers, Greg Rosier and Casey Petit for their support of the network. And we really appreciate you, uh, taking your hard-earned money and helping us make sure that we can make uh, Trek FM a reality from now and as, as, as long as possible. So again, thank you so much. And again, you can go over to patreon.com slash Trek FM and see how you can be part of our team. Um, Chris, uh, before we get out of here, though, I feel like we should give you an opportunity to let everybody know where they can find you online if they want to catch up with you and see what's going on. Well, uh, as we near the end of the year, Things have really picked up at work again, uh, but I'm almost to the end of this tunnel I've been in for the last three years, so I'm looking forward to that. But uh, it does mean that for the past month or two, I haven't been podcasting much again after I I did come back for a little while, but I'm going to change that soon. If you uh, do want to listen to some of my recent shows, though, you can find me on The Ready Room, which Larry Nemechek and I do together. We did an episode, I think, last month. And we'll have another one coming up soon because we're going to do our mid-season discovery, season three, look back. And I also have Interphase, which is a new podcast. I have a few episodes of that out. And uh, that's uh, basically where I am at the moment in terms of podcasting. Now, if you'd like to chat with me, I'm always up for some quick chatting about Star Trek. And the best place to find me to do that is on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's Brian with the letter Y. So the letter C and Brian with a Y. That's where I'm most active. You can find me on Facebook as well, although I don't use Facebook very much outside of peeking in on the Babel Conference. And uh, that's about it, Matthew. So let me ask you, when you're not busy pulling all the strings of a story together as the head of the Consistency Bureau, where can people find you and what do you have going on? Well, uh, you could find me on pretty much any social media platform out there that I'm on. I'm under Matt Rushing Zero Two, so just check any of those places. You'll find me there. Uh, you can also follow uh, the Six Hundred Two Club, which is uh, our Twitter account for uh, that part of our network uh, that we're you know actually planning on growing, which is really cool. So I'm very excited uh, for that to continue to happen. So please follow uh, us over there as well. Uh, you can also find me uh, here on the network, Chris, when we get a chance, we do the orb together talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, and then I'm over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows. One is called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman. And we are almost finished with our journey through the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. It's amazing. It's, it's really exciting. <laughs> I know so many chapters. It's, it's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah. It is. It is. Um, you know, in the end, it'll be 200 episodes of shows. Um, wow. but it's, it's been worth every, every bit. Uh, and then you can find me doing aggressive negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast where, uh, John Mills and I talk about Star Wars every week. So hopefully you'll join us over there. We should point out, Matthew, a Parsec award winning podcast about Star Wars. This is true. This is true. We were very honored to win a Parsec. And I should mention too, I, I forgot to mention that I do talk about Star Trek Discovery on the Edge. I've got a couple of episodes out. I'm a little bit behind, but I'm uh, going through season three as we go along. So you can find me on that podcast as well. Well, Matthew, it was a lot of fun today talking to Greg and, of course, going through those comics. And I'm looking forward to our upcoming discussions with comics and also getting Una on here to talk about Janeway. So uh, I'll be busy reading and... uh, Looking forward to the next literary trek with you. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And of course, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.